I'm Chris Reback, and I welcome you back to a new season of Political Wire Conversations. But before we begin, some questions. Who will win the White House? Will there be a contested convention this summer? What about the House and Senate? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now we begin our new season of Political Wire Conversations with the question dominating most of our minds. What in the world is going on? We are well into a primary season with results few of us expected and headed straight to a general election that even fewer dare to predict. All of us, and certainly both major political parties, are in unchartered territory. For Democrats, their new location at least appears to be on a pre-existing map. For Republicans, their new map reveals a planet they never knew existed, a place that frequently shows little signs of gravity, and I mean both definitions of the word, with its lack of seriousness alongside a certain amount of weightlessness. This place is a foreign territory, and there's no huge wall to keep us out. It's a place where the leading candidate and possible nominee is hated by the party establishment, actively running against the party and party ideology he hopes to represent. Yet this new planet may be exactly where the future of politics is headed, a place where the direct connection between candidate and voter has changed and governs everything. So how did we get here? More importantly, where are we going to kick off our season and help us find answers? There's no one better than my friend and political wire's namesake, Tegan Goddard. Tegan, few humans consume more political news, trivia, and nonsense than you. If you didn't see the realities of this political season coming, I don't know who would. How come we all missed it? <laughs> With an accent on the nonsense, Chris, right? Yeah. There, there, is a, there is an enormous amount of political news right now, but what we're witnessing here is truly historic. I mean, this it's not an exaggeration to say that this does not happen even in a generation or every two generations. In If you put it in perspective, there was a book that came out uh, about a decade ago, 2008 actually, uh, called The Party Decides. And it basically, say, the, the, the thesis of this book was that uh, even though we have primaries and caucuses, the party establishment is still calling the shots behind the scenes. And that this is the book that coined the phrase that we've all heard, the invisible primary, which describes how candidates wooed various parts of the party establishment in their efforts to secure the presidential nomination. And the reason this was necessary was that political parties provided all sorts of stuff that candidates needed in order to break through. They need fundraising capabilities, voter lists, policy platforms, and most importantly, legitimacy. But what we've seen in this election cycle has completely broken these rules 
And Donald Trump is probably the epitomizes the guy who has broken these rules. Yeah, he, well, there, there's never been a rule that he's afraid to. I mean, he looks for rules, right? Because that's that's what he, um, you know, he wants to break those. And, and we'll talk about Trump. And and you know, I want to really understand your point of view. You know, is this? I mean. Actually, I can ask you right now, is it because of Trump? I mean, so is, is this a Trump thing or is he the, you know, is, is he the, the, the channel or the avenue through which we're seeing it? I mean, did, did everything change regardless of Trump and he's just the, the best, you know, current person to, is skilled person in terms of taking advantage of it? Um, or, or was, you know, did, did things break already? I think that's a great question. I mean, I think we can, take a look at some other characters. I think Donald Trump, though, has embodied uh, what the has embodied the breaking of these rules right now. Let's just take a look at it. He's absolutely loathed by the party party establishment. He's actively run against the party. He's challenged the party's core ideology in the last debate on immigration and on free trade. uh, He goes against what the establishment wants for the Republican Party. He's called Two former presidential nominees, Mitt Romney and John McCain, pathetic losers. And he said that the last Republican in the Oval Office, George W. Bush, was actually a failed president. So Donald Trump really is running against the party. And as the front runner, I think you can say he's challenged the thesis of this book, The Party Decides, because the party is not deciding in this case to make Donald Trump the front runner. But your question's a good one, Chris, because when you look at some of the other characters in this race, Senator Ted Cruz, who is really the only other viable contender right now for the nomination, a man who's recognized as the most hated senator by his colleagues, uh, he's also rattled the thesis of this book. He is not somebody that the party wants as their standard bearer. And when you look across the aisle, you look at the Democratic side, while the establishment has pretty much rallied around Hillary Clinton, there's obviously another insurgency going on. Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont, has run an amazing campaign. And when you think about it, six months ago, he wasn't even a member of the Democratic Party. He's raised his money outside of the party establishment. In the month of February, he raised $42 million. He's generated support by going against the party. He's not not of the party. And so obviously something is going on here that is bigger than Donald Trump. But I think Donald Trump is the is the person who embodies what is happening because of his celebrity and because of his wealth, he's probably been able to, you know, push the fast forward button on what is already happening. But but is that the mechanism? I mean, it, it's is it celebrity and wealth that is enabling it? And when you talk about uh, Trump and Cruz and Sanders, you, you keep coming back to it. You know, it's the they're fighting the establishment. It, it's the anti. So is this an anti-establishment thing? Is that like that's the theme of 2016? It's anti-establishment. So if you're against the establishment, you're you know, you're going to take the lead because this is the time of anti-establishment. And it turns out that Trump's really wealthy and he's able to figure out how to, you know, so he doesn't need uh, their stinking money. And Sanders is really good at, fun, you know, at, at fundraising outside of the, you know, at the system at what does he say? $27 at a time. And, and so, um, you know, it's just, if you're anti-establishment, that's, that's what this is about. Or, or, or is there something else? Is it not just that it's anti-establishment? Yeah, I don't think that it is just anti-establishment, but I think that 
So, so I think obviously the parties are losing control. The party is no longer deciding. The voters deciding. But how and, are they deciding? And and, that's and the, why? So how are, how are they deciding? And and why is the party losing control? I mean, it was eight years ago. I mean, the, the party decides. The, you know, the book you referenced. You know, that that's only eight years ago. I mean, I know you know things are moving faster than ever before in history. Um, but that's a pretty short amount of time for uh, parties to lose relevance. So what, what what's happened? No, I think that's I think that's it. That's it, Chris. Let's look at what's happened over the course of the last eight years. If you go back to the to eight years ago, at this point, uh, Barack Obama was running for president. Okay, seems like a generation ago, but it was just eight eight years ago. But think of what's happened in that eight years. In two thousand seven, two thousand eight, in that time frame, Facebook was still ramping up. Okay, and technology and social media was very different. We got a little hint of this, actually, of what was going on when Barack Obama, obviously, he, he excited people in 2008 and he ran a, uh, he, he, you know, a, an amazing campaign which captured us all. Um, but in 2012, we got a hint of what, uh, of what Facebook and what social media was really going to do. Because if you think about it, in 2008, Facebook wasn't really a force yet. But by 2012, it was a completely different world. And when when the Obama campaign realized and was gearing up for re-election, when they realized that in order to win, that they had to piece together the coalition that was so successful in 2008, but one piece of that was young voters. They had to energize young voters. They had to increase the turnout of young voters. And many people thought that was not possible. 2008 was such a historic year that how could they possibly get young people to come out in, in the same numbers, let alone greater numbers? And they had another obstacle, uh, a major obstacle in trying to attract those young voters. The, the obstacle was they couldn't get in touch with them in the same way. Most young people don't have, don't have landlines. They don't have phones that they can be called. And that, that's one of the main, main, ration, main ways to get to voters is to actually call them, robocalls, automated phone calls, get the message directly to the voters that you care about. It's against the law to call their cell phones. So the Obama campaign figured out that they could actually reach about 98% of young people through Facebook. And they began to wage a campaign on Facebook, which was actually pretty extraordinary. What made it extraordinary was not that the Obama campaign was putting their message out, though. What made it extraordinary was that the Romney campaign was essentially absent. They were not there. And what happens when there's, your opponent doesn't show up? You don't need to run negative attack ads. You can run an entirely positive ad, but an entirely positive campaign. You can talk about yourself, your message, what you're going to do for voters. You don't actually have to worry about the other guy because the other guy didn't show up. And that's exactly what happened in 2012. Um, I was actually an observer at the post-election conference at Harvard where you had on one side of the, uh, one side of the conference table, you had the Democratic uh, campaign. You had Barack Obama's campaign. On the other side of the table, you had the Romney campaign, and it was extraordinary when the Romney campaign heard how the Obama campaign had uh, ramped up this uh, this campaign on Facebook, really pretty much under their noses. They had no idea what was going on, and they were shocked. I mean, in, 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 in talking with folks afterwards, um, they were amazed at what had happened. It was a completely different campaign, and I bring that up simply because it was a hint at what we're seeing today. So fast forward to 2016 and you're seeing Donald Trump, the king of Twitter, but also the king of many other social networks, including Facebook, speaking directly to voters. And that's the real difference here. And that's why the voters are now deciding. And so I want to 
think about and, and hear your views on on that disintermediation, the disintermediation of the of the party. But th- there's a, a piece that I saw recently. You may have seen it, a Columbia Journalism Review piece by Emily Bell called um, "Facebook is Eating the World." Um, it's it's online right now, and and she writes, "Social media hasn't just swallowed journalism; it's swallowed everything." It has swallowed political campaigns, banking systems, personal histories, the leisure industry, retail, even government and security. The phone in our pocket is our portal to the world. I think in many ways this heralds enormously exciting opportunities for education, information, and connection, but it brings with it a host of contingent existential risks. Is the death of political parties one of those uh, uh, contingent existential risks? I absolutely think so, because you have a situation where uh, candidates, potential candidates, can go right around parties. They can have a direct connection with voters. They literally have voters who will follow them uh, on these networks. It's very easy now for factions, both within the with, within and outside the party, to coordinate on their own, within these campaigns to coordinate on their own. And, and what it's done is not only has it undermined the political party, but it's under, undermined, and this is, this is obviously a story we've been seeing for years, but it's undermined a lot of the traditional media outlets. So Donald Trump, to bring, bring back the guy who epitomizes what's going on here, he's not just running against the Republican Party. He's running against those, those party established, those media outlets that are identified with the Republican Party. He's run against Fox News. I mean, he's actively at war. He's been at war with Fox News, with Megyn Kelly and with Fox News as a, as a news organization. Really startling. Nobody would have thought if you had gone six months ago that if someone, if a Republican candidate went to war with Fox News, that they'd be the front runner of the nomination. He's gone to war with the Wall Street Journal editorial page. National Review, which is really the magazine that kind of started the, the conservative movement back in the 1960s, William F. Buckley's publication, has actively run uh, cover stories trying to undermine Trump's campaign. So the traditional, the traditional Republican Party media outlets are also caught up in this, and Trump is going right around them. He's going right to voters. And it, it's really a, it's really an amazingly fascinating thing because he does not need those typical the, those media outlets that were typical uh, the typical ways to get to Republican voters anymore. He can go directly to them, and he doesn't need the establishment. He doesn't need the party leaders. He doesn't need the party apparatus. He can go right to the voters that matter, and these are the voters that are voting in the primaries, and these are the voters that have made him the Republican frontrunner. So is this a technology play where the technology – so there's – there, either way you look at it, there is an anti-establishment thing going on. It may not be the only thing that's going on, but you just described, you know, Trump is running against Fox, you know, against National Review, you know, against the Republican establishment media channels. He's also running against the party, of course. So, so you know, any way you cut it, he's running against the establishment in an incredibly um, successful way. But, but is your, are you saying then that that may be true, but if we didn't have the Facebook effect, if Facebook weren't in, you know, in Emily Bell's words, uh, eating the world, then he might have that, that, that bent. He might be wanting to run against the establishment, but his ability to execute on that plan wouldn't necessarily be there. That, that you, you need this technology play, um, to be able to put that strategy into action. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So when you look at a message, you you look at a candidate trying to get out his message and you realize that that message is no longer 
based upon who is necessarily saying it. It's not the party. It's not Fox News. It's not National Review. It, essentially, users are choosing what they want to hear. So it sounds a little confusing, but if, if you look at the if you look at the Facebook like button that has popped up all over the internet, I mean, it's, it's on political wire, it's everywhere. It's recording your preferences on every single issue. So when you like an article about Donald Trump building a wall on the Mexican border, Facebook knows it should send you more of those articles. So it, it's a subtle twist, but it's a pretty dramatic twist. It means that readers and that users are seeking their news and they're getting their news Right next to pictures of their kids, you know, of their of their kids, of their s- sisters' kids, of funny cat videos, funny dog videos, they're getting it right there in their Facebook feed. But they're telling Facebook, "This is the type of thing that I want to see more of." And Donald Trump is playing to this. Donald Trump has figured out the issues that people want to hear, and he's telling them, he's telling the voters what they want to hear. If you go back to the thesis of the party decides, that's not the way it happened. In the book, the party decides it's the party leaders, the establishment, the elite that are concerned about the policy messages that go out. They're the ones who formulate the messages and and the candidates kind of work their candidacies around that. In this new world, it's the, the, in the most, in, in this new world, the most successful politicians are actually not those who are serving this party apparatus, but the ones who are telling the voters exactly what they want to hear. And they know what they want to hear because they're telling Facebook this. And Facebook is making sure that your message gets to them. So Donald Trump is the first candidate that's really recognized this. This was a technology that wasn't really feasible, you know, eight years ago. It's now feasible. And in doing so, he's completely changed the rules. You wrote that uh, the power has shifted from the supply side to the demand side when you're looking at this campaign, this election season. What, What do you mean by that? Well, essentially that it's, it's, it, it has shifted to the voters. Okay. It is the, the voters are actually what they demand, what they want to hear. That's what's being reflected in the campaign. And so when you look at the candidacies of someone like Jeb Bush or John Kasich or even Marco Rubio, who actually got his start, not in the establishment world, but as a Tea Party candidate. But as soon as they move to try to placate the establishment, the establishment is trying to tell voters, here's what we're, here's what the party's about. Here's what we're trying to do. And the voters are saying, no, that's not what we, that's not what we're about. That's not what we want to hear. That, that's not what we believe. Donald Trump is actually playing exactly to what they want to hear. So if you have voters, this is, and, and when you had talked, Chris, earlier in this conversation about, this simply being an anti-establishment play, it's really not. It's it's the simple fact that Donald Trump has recognized that voters are concerned about immigration. They're concerned about undocumented workers. They feel threatened by these people taking their jobs. They feel threatened by uh, people in China and, and in other countries uh, taking, a, taking their jobs and taking advantage of this country because of free trade laws. Donald Trump's recognized this. He's recognized that there are people out there. The Republican Party as as an apparatus, as an establishment, as as an organization did not realize this. And so there's a major disconnect here. Donald Trump has been able to exploit that disconnect. And that's really been the key to his success. Well, the, the, the parties, and I might even put both of them in this camp, they either didn't recognize it, what you're talking about, and the, the way that uh, American workers and, and there's so much discomfort around, you know, who's actually been winning from uh, free trade and from 
uh, economic opportunities to the extent that they exist. The, the parties either haven't realized it or perhaps worse, they have realized it and haven't, you know, instituted policies. You know, they, they haven't worried about that portion. You know, they've, they've focused. And I know you've talked about this and you and I have talked about this and, and others as well. You know, they've spent a lot of time focusing on, uh, you know, the, the so-called social ills and, and the ways that we're going to keep our, our party and our coalition together, uh, based on social issues that may or may not be, uh, of prime importance, but what certainly is of prime importance to, uh, you know, voters on, on both sides is, uh, you know, economic opportunity and, and do I have a job today and will I have a, have a better job tomorrow? Um, w- one thing you, you haven't really kind of, that I haven't gotten a sense of is, um, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I mean, if, if the candidates have found their way around the parties, if they are kicking the establishment in the butt and asking them not to let the door hit them on the way out, is that so bad? I mean, do, do we need the party establishment on, on either side, on the Democratic side or the Republican side? Is the party establishment something that we really need? That's a great question. And I think we're, you know, it's it's a little hard to answer definitively because there's obviously an awful lot of people who see Donald Trump and who say that that's you know, the rise of Donald Trump is certainly not a good thing for American politics. Uh, there's an awful lot about what Donald Trump has done and what he's brought to politics, which uh, is not what we would really want in our country. And there's a there's an entire group of people who prefer that we went back to the days of 50 years ago when candidates were chosen in smoke filled rooms. Um, and that, you know, the, the thought was that we got better candidates then than we do when the voters are deciding. So there's a, there's a bunch of this, this campaign has kind of broken open, uh, that discussion and, and it'll be interesting. I think what, I think it's probably never a bad thing for candidates for, for parties and for candidates to speak directly to voters and to understand what voters' concerns are. I think that in the ideal world, that's probably the way that we get the best, uh, the best representation in our, in our public officials. Um, but in a situation where we have some candidates who are able due to their wealth or due to their celebrity and due to their cynicism, speak directly to, you know, only cynical concerns uh, of some voters or of a slice of voters. Because when you real, you know, when you recognize this, Donald Trump is really only speaking to a, uh, he's not speaking to a majority of Americans. And, and, and actually, if he was to be nominated, he would be the most unpopular uh, presidential nominee since the polling began. It's really quite extraordinary. But he's won just enough of Republican voters and of voters who vote in Republican primaries and who attend Republican caucuses, he's won just enough of them to be the Republican front runner. And he's obviously uh, the one best position to actually get the nomination, unless, of course, it goes to a contested contested convention. And I promise you, Chris, we'll have to do another uh, episode of the show on the contested convention. Yeah, we, we will. And it's funny you say that because that was, uh, that's the, the next and, and, you know, possibly the last question I, I have for you. And it's purely because, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, take in as much, uh, political trivia and nonsense as, as you do, uh, you know, we, we got to find out, can, you know, can there be a brokered convention? I, I mean, isn't that just or is that just a ridiculous dream of political junkies and poli sci majors? Um, I, it can't be baked into reality, can it? 
Well, it sure looks like we're headed that way, and that's going to be interesting. Of course, I like to use the term contested convention rather than the brokered convention simply because it's not clear who the brokers are anymore, uh, which is also part of the problem. There are no single – there are no group of individuals who are truly calling the shots at this point, which is probably why we've gotten to this point. Um, But a contested convention can certainly happen if nobody can get a majority uh, on the first ballot, and Donald Trump may have – enough delegates to technically get a majority on the ballot. But there's some fascinating uh, articles coming out about what state party leaders are doing behind the scenes and trying to essentially put double agents in as delegates, delegates who are theoretically committed to Trump, but may not be, may have ulterior motives. And Donald Trump, who is not a creature of the party, um, this may be happening right under his nose and he has no idea. So I think if we get to a uh, convention, it is not at all clear that Donald Trump actually ends up as the nominee, which, of course, would set in motion an unbelievable chain of events. And uh, we're really facing the complete breakup of the Republican Party, in my view, which kind of brings us right back to where we started, which is what we're witnessing, folks, is a truly historic, truly historic event. Um, this is something that does not happen every cycle. It does not even happen every generation. And so it's really just an enormous pleasure just from somebody who's interested in politics uh, to witness this. It's going to be fas- a fascinating ride. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a pleasure. And the thought of a contested convention is certainly a pleasure for someone who uh, puts uh, the daily uh, political news out and uh, compiles it and organizes it. Uh, and I would only imagine that uh, anything in that direction will send the uh, already uh, high popularity of what you do every day uh, into <laughs> into a new stratosphere. Tegan Goddard of Tegan Goddard's Political Wire. Uh, if we, you know, if and when we need you again and uh, want to talk with you again for a political wire conversation, I'm sure we know uh, where to find you, right, Tegan? Thanks, Chris. And uh, absolutely, I, we are all looking forward to the next season of Political Wire Conversations. The first season that we had was a huge hit, um, and we've got some really great guests lined up. And I, I can't wait to come back and chat some more with you as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the season as well. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.